This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Bodhipaksa. Bodhipaksa is a Buddhist teacher, author, and a member of the Western Buddhist Order since 1993. He currently teaches Buddhism and meditation to prisoners and is the author of several books, including Wild Mind, a step-by-step guide to meditation, as well as the Sounds True audio learning programs, Still the Mind, and the wisdom of the breath. I spoke with Bodhipaksa about the fluid nature of identity, what he calls living as a river. So Bodhipaksa, you submitted a very interesting book to Sounds True, which we've decided to publish, and you called it in your submission, The Six Rivers of Becoming, what science and spirituality teach us about who we really are. And of course, who knows, by the time Sounds True publishes it, we might call it something like, you know, how to be happy through the six rivers of becoming or something like that. But I'm curious, first of all, what brought you to writing this book? And if you can tell us a little bit about what it's about. Okay. The book comes out of uh, a practice that I do. Uh, It's an insight meditation practice called the Six Element Practice. And what it is, it's a, a reflective meditation where you are working on becoming aware of what it is that you identify with as being yourself. And you're working on letting go of that. You're realizing that what you identify with being yourself is, in fact, not something static, and it's not something separate from the outside world. So you take something like the, well, I haven't said what the elements are, have I? So I'll go into that. So you've got these six elements, which are earth, which is whatever is solid within the body, water, whatever is liquid in the body, the fire element, which is just what, uh, just all the energy in the body, the physical energy in the body, as opposed to you know more spiritual ideas about, about energy. Uh, there's the air element, which is just whatever is uh, gaseous in the body. There's the space element, which is not one of the classical elements, but... Uh, the way I understand that in my practice is that it's the sum total of space that all of that matter and energy take up. So it's your form, your physical appearance, which we get identified, uh, we identify with as being ourselves. And then there's the consciousness, uh, which resides within uh, all of that and functions within, within all of that. And with each of these elements, uh, what you can do is reflect on the, the ways in which uh, there's not a thing there, but a process. And what you might identify with, for example, as the earth element or the solid matter within your body right now, has come from outside of you. A little while ago, the calcium that's in your bones was actually in bread or in milk. Uh, you know, the protein that's making up your muscles was, was in a burger or slab of tofu or something like that. And what you're doing is you're becoming aware that 
suddenly identify with and being yourself is just borrowed from the outside world. It's not something that you can hold on to because it's continually passing back to the outside world. What you identified with a few moments ago as being you is already beginning to depart. So skin cells are flaking off, hairs are falling out, you're combusting uh, carbohydrates in your body and you're exhaling them as carbon dioxide and that carbon dioxide is becoming trees. You go to the bathroom, you take a dump that gets flushed away somewhere, it gets broken down by bacteria and protozoa and gets built into plants, etc., etc. So when you start looking at yourself, you get you start in this way, you start to get a sense of yourself not as a thing, but as a process. And you start to realize that everything that you identify with as yourself is not a self. It's all borrowed. It's all coming from outside, and it's all returning to the outside again. So, Bodhi Park, so just to go back a moment, I mean, I think most people, even before deconstructing their body into these six different elements, just think, well, of course who I am has a lot to do with my body because I wouldn't be here if I didn't have a body, right? Mm. So, I mean, my, identi- right. my identity has a lot to do with my body. Yeah. Correct? Yes, oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I might not be just my body, but I, I am kind of my body in a certain way, aren't I? Well, in a certain way, we, we are, yeah. I mean, what are we if we take away our bodies and our minds? But it's more a question of um, how we actually relate uh, to our bodies. Um, for, for example, uh, you know, you look in the mirror and you see yourself and you notice that you've been changing. And, well, what does that feel like? You know, you notice that there's a few more gray hairs there or there's some wrinkles that weren't there before or your belly's sagging a little bit more. Well, we suffer because we, we identify our bodies as being ourselves and our bodies are continually changing. And so our basis for uh, feeling secure about ourselves is continually changing because we're identifying with something that's insecure. So the argument from the from the practice is that if you want to be happy, what you have to do is to embrace change and stop clinging to something uh, that is continually changing. Because by clinging to something in an effort to find some kind of security, uh, when that something is continually changing, you're going to end up suffering. Mm-hmm. Well, I think a lot of people have a, a great deal of panic, let's say, if there's a diagnosis of a terminal illness kind of thing, of course. It's like, so without my body, I might not be here. So, of course, I feel identified with my body. Yeah, right. right. I mean, it's quite natural. I mean, it's, a, it's an evolutionary thing, really. I mean, we take care of our bodies, and we have to take care of our bodies. And, and this practice wouldn't suggest that we start neglecting our bodies. It just suggests that we stop putting quite so much, um, uh, seeing so much importance and significance in them. Start just accepting the fact that they do change rather than trying to fight it all the time. Just accept that there is change. So the, the idea or part of the idea behind this deconstruction into the six elements is recognizing the amount of change that's always going on and that that's just the fact of what's happening? It is, yeah. Yeah, and there's effects from that. I mean, this practice is um, traditionally regarded as being an antidote to conceit. Um, and conceit can mean a number of different things. I mean, it can mean an inflated sense of self-importance. And the practice certainly can, can do that, because when we start, for example, 
being so proud of our bodies because they're firm and toned or, you know, or good-looking and people like them and that kind of stuff. That is setting up the conditions for future suffering because at some point people are going to be looking at our bodies and thinking, well, you know, 10 years ago she was pretty good-looking or 10 years ago he was, you know, he had quite a body on him, but, you know, look at him now. So this, this certain amount of conceit gets let go of that way, but there's, there's other interpretations of the word conceit in Buddhist practice, which is that it's uh, conceiving, the word conceit and conceiving are related to each other, it's conceiving of yourself as being uh, separate and as being either better than, equal to, or worse than other beings, and all of those things are sources of suffering. Uh, we set ourselves up as being separate from the world, we set ourselves up as being separate from other people. And as soon as we start doing that, we see ourselves as being, you know, in some way, for example, in competition w with other people. Um, we see ourselves as being separate, and therefore we, we, we're all competing for the same scarce resources of you know, love, etc. And uh, you know, again, we end up suffering because of that. So we're working on letting go of multiple levels of identification so that we can be happier. This question that it seems like the six-element practice is exploring, you know, what is the self? What is identity? I mean, it seems to me that that is a core question in spirituality. I mean, wouldn't you agree? I think it's the core question, really, yeah, who we are, what we, what we are. Mm -hmm. um, I think at the time of the Buddha, people were asking this question a lot, you know, what is the, the true self? And most answers came down to positing that there was some kind of uh, true self or soul that was within us that we couldn't necessarily um, have direct experience of, or some aspect of ourselves would be uh, taken to be uh, a permanent and unchanging and separate uh, entity. The Buddha's response to that seemed to be quite radical, that we should let go of any identification uh, whatsoever. It's quite a hard position to grasp. Even as someone who's been practicing for you know, two or three decades, it's uh, not an easy uh, position to grasp. I have some sense of what the Buddha meant by that, but I can't say uh, I've in any way plumbed the depths of what he was pointing at. This idea of, of dropping any kind of identification. So when you do the six element practice, how does that take you through that process of disidentifying? It's quite a subtle thing, really. I mean, you're doing this with the physical elements, um, so you're becoming aware of the fact that everything that you, that constitutes your body, whether it's solid, liquid, uh, gaseous, or energy, all of that really isn't you, and it's not something that you can hold on to. And it causes this sense of, um, wow, well, it can actually do a number of different things to you, but one thing it does is this more of a sense of kind of lightness. Uh, it, it's like having had a fist and it begins to kind of open again. And it's hard to kind of communicate that to someone because if we've been going around our entire lives with our hands and fists and someone says, you know, you don't really need to have your hands that way. You can relax them a little bit. You can kind of let go of them a little bit. It's kind of hard to see how you can do that and it's hard to imagine what that would actually feel like uh, until you've done it. But there's 
what is that sense of uh, of lightness? There can be a sense of uh, humility as well, because you know we go around thinking that we're the center of the world, and actually we're just a little uh, vortex of matter and energy and consciousness uh, in an absolutely huge world, uh, a huge and very very complex world, which is full of billions of other vortexes or vortices of uh, energy and matter and consciousness. So it can be, uh, it can bring about a sense of uh, humility. Uh, there can be a sense of appreciation as well. You should start realizing how much you're dependent upon others and other processes in, in the world around about you. And I think all of these things are ultimately kind of liberating. They're liberating ourselves from a sense of, hey, I'm, I'm so cool, I'm the center of the world. You know, mm-hmm. I'm the center of the universe. Everything revolves around, around about me. You know, get out of my way, here I come. Yeah. You know, we start to, to be more appreciative. Now, now, probably the main way that people identify is with their thoughts about themselves. When you say, I mean, I, you know, I think I'm this, I think I'm that. I mean, you, you were talking about the physical aspects of the body in terms of the elements, but how do we work on this disidentifying from what we think about who we are? Well, I think the longer you practice, the more you start realizing that things can change. Um, I mean, when I started practicing, uh, I was a really, really bad-tempered person. Uh, I was so moody and bad-tempered that I didn't realize I was moody and bad-tempered. I just thought it was the, the world was just full of idiots. <laughs> it's kind of funny, I think about it. And how, how old were you, Pody Paxa? Um, this is my early 20s, and yeah, I guess I was kind of quite, quite arrogant and also quite insecure uh, as well. So, you know, over the years, I've, I've gone from uh, being full of, uh, you know, ill will and contempt for other people to being, you know, a much friendlier, much more approachable, much more compassionate person. And so I've, I've experienced myself this you know, big change in my personality. I think a lot of people who haven't experienced that yet, that kind of change, just have the sense that, well, you're stuck with what you've got. So, you know, if I'm a bad type of person, then that's just how I am. And, you know, or if I'm full of craving and can't stop, you know, you know eating or pursuing uh, sensuous delights, and that's just the kind of person I am. This is the way I was made. So p- people identify with the way that they, they are at a particular time and don't uh, realize, or perhaps can't realize until they've begun a process of changing. But actually, these things are quite malleable. There's a lot of change can go on. But I, st- I guess still what I'm asking about is, you know, I have these ideas about who I am. I have these thought structures. I'm a, you know, person who is, you know, whatever. And so what, what you're saying is the to take that lightly, that that could change. Yeah, it might be uh, true in a sense, uh, right now, but a lot of things can change very, very quickly. Um, I mean, think of somebody, for example, like uh, you know, Eckhart Tolle talks about his experience um, of having this radical shift in consciousness, where literally one minute he's depressed and contemplating suicide, and the next minute he's completely at peace. You know, when you're when you're experiencing depression, you think that's how it's going to be. Yeah, this is how I am. This is how it's going to be. I'm stuck. But sometimes, you know, the the underlying support for 
a mental state like that, for an attitude like that, and the view, all the views that go with it about the kind of person you are and the kind of world that you live in and how that world that you live in relates to you, uh, the whole substructure for that can just completely collapse uh, at a moment's notice. Uh, radical change can happen quite quickly. Sometimes it takes a long, long time. It took me a long time to learn not to be a bad-tempered person. But sometimes things can just uh, change quite instantaneously. Mm-hmm. And how do you think that the practice of meditation uh, affected this bad-tempered person in their early 20s? Or do you think there were other factors that created this gradual change in you? I mean, yeah, how did you become less bad-tempered? Well, I did a lot of uh, metabhavna, development of loving-kindness practice, and that well, definitely had an effect. Can you tell us specifically what you did? What were you, what were you focusing on? Right, well... Um, Metabhavna, or development of loving-kindness, is a practice for developing a more appreciative, friendly, loving, uh, compassionate attitude towards ourselves and towards others. Uh, <clears throat> I, I did that practice a lot, uh, where you know, we start with ourselves, uh, wishing ourselves well, move on to a good friend, a neutral person, somebody we don't really have much emotional connection with, somebody who we have difficulties with, and uh, then expanding that feeling of loving kindness into the world. And, you know, I, I used to have a lot of enemies. I used to have a lot of people that I didn't like. And so I would, um, you know, wish those people well. Sometimes things would change quite rapidly. Uh, I think I discovered within my first few weeks of meditation that a mood could suddenly shift. And I remember, for example, once I was a student at the time and I was sitting in a car with a bunch of other an apartment with, and they were having this conversation that I just find was so trivial. You know, I was just way above all this, of course. But they were talking about their father's ties or something like this. And to me, this was just so trivial and uh, this condescending attitude. And I just got myself into a, a real bad temper about it. Then I remembered, like, just a week before, I'd learned this uh, development of loving kindness practice. So I just sat there uh, saying, you know, may I be well? May I be happy? May I be free from suffering? And after about four or five minutes, I realized, hey, I'm not in a bad mood anymore. You know, I actually felt, uh, you know, human and open and responsive to the people around about me rather than judgmental of them. So the practice just, just does change you. Um, I sometimes had to adapt the practice because uh, there were parts of myself that I just didn't like. I became aware, for example, of how judgmental I was and... I didn't like that, and so that became a problem in itself. That I became judgmental of my judgmental attitudes. Yeah. So what I did was I created a version of the practice for myself where in each stage of the practice, it was me. So I started out just wishing myself well, and then in the friend stage, I started, uh, I would uh, wish well the parts of myself that I liked and appreciated. In the neutral person uh, stage, I would take parts of myself that perhaps I'd never really you know, paid much attention to and I would wish them well. And then in the, the enemy or difficult stage, a difficult person stage, I would take parts of myself that I didn't like and I would uh, I'd wish them well. And that was very uh, transforming as well because it was a practice of complete, unconditional uh, loving kindness towards parts of myself that were actually not just difficult, but were in pain, yeah. um, I started to realize that underneath my prickliness, underneath my 
bad temperedness was actually a lot of pain um, that I'd never really acknowledged. Um, I guess I'd been brought up in a, a rather you know stiff upper lip culture uh, where people are very reserved, and you just um, you just dealt with it. You know, if something happened round about you, and it was it was difficult or painful. It was kind of un, unmanly to uh, show the world or even to admit to yourself that, that you found it painful. So I, I went through a long process of just, you know, allowing myself to feel pain and realizing that that was okay and welcoming in the pain, even, and just uh, and treating myself almost as if I was a good friend who had turned up on my own doorstep. You know, if, if you had a, a good friend who turned up on your doorstep and they were really unhappy about something, uh, you'd probably want to just you know, welcome them in and sit down and, and what's going on, dude? Tell me about it. You know, I want to know. You know, and you'd kind of embrace their pain in an attitude of uh, kindly inquiry, and that's what I started doing with my own, uh, with my own pain as well, uh, realizing that I could actually just welcome that in and just find out, you know, what's going on here. And that, in itself, was enough to uh, take away a lot of the bad temperedness, because the bad temperedness was really just uh, an outward symptom of an inward problem of not accepting my own uh, my own pain, my own vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And, and how did your view towards other people change? You know, all those people that you thought were idiots in your early twenties. <laughs> well, you know. The, the, um, I still occasionally find people that I think are complete idiots, especially on the internet and especially in, in political discussions. However, uh, people that I actually know, I tend to be much more kind of uh, forgiving uh, uh, towards them. I've, I've come to realize more and more that everything that everybody does uh, comes ultimately from a good motive, uh, which is that they want to be happy. It doesn't matter how outrageous the behavior of, of that person, how unskillful, how unethical it might seem to be. They they have a belief that in doing the things that they're doing it's gonna make them it's gonna make them happy. And that in itself is actually a good motivation. You know, it's a good thing to to want to be happy. It's the strategy that that is wrong. It's the strategy that's in error. Uh, when people are doing things that you know, generally just you know, kind of piss us off. I mean sometimes it's just us the way that we respond, but when someone's genuinely doing something that's unskillful or unethical, it's a strategy for becoming happy, but it's a strategy that they've chosen that just isn't going to work, and that's the problem with it. There was a Buddhist text that I translated once when I was studying uh, Pali at university, and it was quite staggering, really. Uh, you know, there's all this emphasis in Buddhism of letting go of greed, letting go of hatred, letting go of delusion. And there was a passage where the Buddha said, you know, if greed, hatred, and delusion made you happy, I wouldn't tell you to let go of them. I said, I'd tell you to embrace them. Because the whole of the Buddhist path, uh, the Buddha said, is about one thing, which is suffering and how to get rid of suffering, which, to put it more, in more positive terms, is about happiness or fulfillment and how to find happiness and fulfillment. So the problem with greed, hatred, and delusion is not that they are somehow wrong. It's that they don't work. There's strategies for finding happiness, and they don't actually create happiness. They create unhappiness. Mm-hmm. So when you start having that perspective in mind, it becomes, I can't, I have to say, always keep it in mind, but when I, when I can have that perspective in mind, it's much easier to be forgiving of people because you realize that 
at heart, you know, right down in the core, there's something very positive there. It's just there's a layer of uh, delusion there, which is leading to strategies which aren't going to work. And, and that in itself, I mean, that recognition in itself is a way to be more compassionate towards people, realizing that they're doing something that they think is going to make them happy, and it's not. It's going to make them unhappy. Mm-hmm. Now, I was joking with you earlier, Bodhi Paksa, that you know, by the time your manuscript goes through the publishing process, it's going to be called something like How to Be Happy. But it does seem like there's some connection between the six-element practice and that work of deconstructing ourselves that relates to happiness. And, and I'm wondering if you can make that more explicit. Right. Well, it is ultimately what the practice is about, and it's ultimately what all Buddhist practice is about. I suppose the way it works is that we seek happiness in trying to find some kind of uh, sense of security. And how do we find security? Well, we cling to something. Uh, we identify with it. We try to uh, to hold on to it. So we're aware that we're living in an impermanent world, and we try to uh, cling. We try to cling to our sense of ourselves as being separate, as being special, uh, for example. And those strategies just, just don't work. Uh, we're not separate, and actually, in, in a way, we're not really that special. In some ways, it's kind of miraculous, but in other ways, we're we're surrounded by miraculous things. So we're just one miracle amongst many, and if you're just one miracle amongst many, you're not really that special. So, uh, you know, letting go of uh, the unhelpful strategy of trying to hold on, what you can do is instead embrace change uh, and find security in not finding security, which is rather paradoxical, I realize. But we find happiness and a sense of well-being, a sense of security, by realizing that we can't hold on to anything. So where's the security in that? Where's the security in that? Yeah. Um, well, that's kind of interesting. Um, I'm not sure I can actually put that into words right now. Um, I mean, this, what comes to mind, I suppose, is the sense that a lot of the time in our lives, we're at odds with the world. We're trying to hold back change. We don't like getting old, for example. We uh, don't like the thought that we're not really that special, and you know, we're in denial about the, the actual reality of things. And so that's kind of inherently insecure. And I think just realizing the reality of things is the only way that we can uh, actually feel secure. Actually, I think I can probably give a better answer. Um, the practice ultimately, I mean, it leads not just through the, the body, but the mind, and paying attention to our experience, and noticing that that experience, too, is just flowing through us. We have uh, feelings, thoughts, emotions, etc., that are, are just passing through, and what we're doing in the practice is developing a sense of equanimity uh, towards all of our experience, which means that we're just allowing it to be, we're just allowing it uh, to flow through us. And it's, it's that sense of equanimity, which I think is real security. Um, it's, again, these things are really hard to articulate. Um, I think even for the Buddha, these things were hard to articulate. Um, but equanimity is uh, kind of an extremely non-reactive, non-grasping state of mind, which just allows things to be. And I think it's ultimately it's that state of equanimity which is real security. Mm-hmm. Now, the the metaphor you use 
throughout the manuscript is this idea of living as a river. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, you know, the, w- this idea of the river. Well, in the practice, you're observing the flow of each of these elements. And there's a number of uh, images that come to my mind when I'm doing the practice. I'll have conjured up this image of how the earth element, for example, is uh, flowing through me. It's coming from the outside world. It's passing through this six feet length of body and it's passing back into the outside world again. And I'll have the sense that what I'm doing is I'm observing something like a river. And sometimes I just imagine that I'm sitting by a riverbank and there's a six foot length of the riverbank that I'm saying that that's me. Okay? Uh, This six foot length of the riverbank, that's me. But every time I say that's me, the water that was in there has already moved. By the time I've articulated that thought, that's me, the water's already passed through. It's already gone. And you're left with this sense of almost trying to grasp the ungraspable. Um, We have the sense that our ourself uh, is a thing, our body is a thing, but actually it's a process, and you can't hold on to a process. A process, by its very nature, is something that's continually changing. So it's almost like you're trying to grasp into the river, you're trying to hold back this six-foot length, and it, of course it just flows through your fingers. So that's, that's one way that the, uh, the river image uh, uh, comes to me. That's probably the main way, actually, start thinking about myself as being not a thing but a process. So part of the idea of doing the six element practice is that we become accustomed in some way and accepting of our riverness. Yeah, our riverness, I like that word. Yes. Yes. It's embracing our riverness. Like fully accepting uh, our riverness, I suppose, rather than embracing even embracing has a sense of grasping or trying to cling to it. So And then, I know you have this interest in science, and that even though this six-element practice is an ancient practice, that there are now discoveries in contemporary science that are confirming, or are at least shedding light in some way for you on the value of the practice and how it works. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that to us. Sure. Well, I think the six-element practice was, in a way, a kind of a scientific practice. Um, I mean, that's the best understanding, but the, the Buddha and people at that time had of the world was that it was made of you know, solid, uh, liquid, gas, and energy all existing within space, and that somewhere in there there was consciousness re- residing. So it was, in a way, a kind of a scientific practice. And when you read things like the description of what the um, uh, what the fire element is, say, it talks about the fire element internally that is within the body, and it describes it as being uh, you know that which digests and which you know, causes the heart to beat, etc. So it's all the um, the physical processes uh, within the body. So I think he was trying to be scientific, the Buddha, in in the way that the practice was structured. But you know, our understanding of how change happens in the body uh, has changed a lot, uh, and our the, the ways that we have of understanding how, for example, the body is not ultimately ours has also changed a lot. So, for example. You know, you, you start thinking about your DNA, and you know, for a lot of us, we think, you know, well, DNA that's like the essence of who we are. You know, there's more uh, viral DNA in your genome than there is human DNA. You're mostly virus. You know, we're human 
viral hybrid, which is kind of an odd thought when you think about it. Uh, so you start realizing that a lot of the stuff that's at your core isn't even human. Uh-huh. Um, start looking at the body, and well, the science can give us a, a much better uh, look at how uh, material, how solid matter, uh, flows through the body. There are some interesting uh, experiments done to try to determine how long various tissues lasted, and it was based on the fact that in the 1950s and 1960s there were a lot of uh, uh, above-ground nuclear tests, and uh, the pulse of radiation that came out from the nuclear tests caused the formation of uh, carbon-14, which is a mildly radioactive, heavier isotope of carbon. Now that quickly got absorbed into living beings, producing a kind of a timestamp, almost. And it became possible to look at the turnover of carbon-14 in the human body and to uh, get a sense of how long different tissues lasted. Mm -hmm. So you find, for example, that the tissues on your skin only last for a few days. The gut lining, similarly, only lasts for a few days. Your bones, uh, I can't remember the exact figures, but your bones last for several years. Even your bones, which you think of as being uh, solid and permanent, uh, are in a continuous change, uh, a continuous process of change. There are cells in your bones, and their only function is to break down your bones. Your bones are continually dissolving uh, from within. Fortunately, there's also some cells in your bones, and their function is to build up bone tissue again. So your bones are continually in this process of dissolving away and being rebuilt. So what you think of as being something solid is is actually some, uh, a, a process that's continually changing all the time. So you know, sometimes science can just uh, illuminate um, uh, processes that the Buddha was probably already familiar about in some way. Sometimes it's uh, things that the Buddha could never have imagined. Uh, so, for example, there are cells in our bodies which actually aren't ours um, in, in a number of different senses. Uh, if you do a count of all the cells in your body, 90% of them are bacterial. So you're 90% not human, which is, again, it's kind of strange to think about that. No, no, 90% of the cells... 90% of them in your body are bacteria or, or protozoa. Now, it's not 90% of the mass in your body because the cells are actually, bacterial cells are much, much smaller than uh, human cells are. But they're really important. I mean, again, we th- tend to think of bacteria as being, you know, these bad guys and we've got to keep them out. But actually, they are really, really important. We've got them living in our skin. They produce uh, the oils which cover our skin. We've never really evolved the capacity to do that because we're never needed to because we've got these bacteria which have learned how to do that. And we give them a home because they do something useful for us. Uh, when we eat food, a lot of the digestion is carried out by bacteria that are compounds that we can't actually digest ourselves, so the bacteria dissolve, uh, dissolve them for us. Um, bacteria produce uh, various chemicals that the body needs, like uh, some of the, the vitamins that are produced by, by bacteria. So we're not even you know, biochemically complete as human beings. We, we, we can't exist in biochemical isolation from things that are not human. Now, uh, now, just to understand what you're saying, the 10% of me that is human, what what is that made of? 90% well, of me is bacteria. That in itself, you know, is made up of non-human stuff, ultimately. I mean, there are, you know, 
ten percent of your body by cell count that is human is all your you know your brain cells and your gut cells and your skin cells etc but uh, ultimately none of that uh, from the perspective of the six element practice is is human because well, where did your skin come from well you know it was that sandwich that you ate a few weeks ago and the um, you know the curry that you had a few weeks before that all these meals that you've been eating that's where your skin comes from and that was not you that was stuff that came from from the outside world so ultimately none of you is human but the the it's very interesting to see things that are so obviously not human uh, within you, and not just within you, but a functioning part of you. Some people have suggested that the um, uh, all the bacteria within us should be regarded as being an organ in their own right, because the, the, it, they perform such complex functions that are intimately tied in with the functioning of the body. I mean, I talked about digestion, for, for example, but... Um, our immune responses are uh, conditioned and, and partly controlled by, by these bacteria. Uh, things like fat metabolism and, and sugar metabolism are, are also moderated by these bacteria. The uh, bacteria are producing chemicals which, is, which are uh, affecting the whole uh, biochemistry of the body. So again, it just you know, becoming aware of things like that just kind of chips away at the sense that we have of being separate and in some way special. You know, you, you talked about there being six elements, and, you know, I, I can understand this process of investigation following along the lines you've been basically uh, sharing with us related to earth and water and fire and air and, and even space. But when we get to consciousness, it seems like the approach might be a little different. I mean, what, what, do, what do you even mean that by consciousness is an element? Well, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? You know, what is consciousness? Uh, nobody actually really knows what consciousness is. There's no really adequate definition. In fact, I don't think you can really define what consciousness is because it's its, its own thing. I mean, when scientists try to study consciousness, what they're doing is looking at activity within the brain. But activity within the brain is not the same as an experience. I mean, the experience of uh, tasting an orange, the taste of an orange, the color of an orange, the smell of an orange, I mean, those are things which exist within consciousness but you can't see those things in the brain. You can see activities in the brain which correlate to the experience of tasting and smelling and seeing and holding an orange. But there's a world of difference between you know, the biochemical, that bioelectrical energy going in, in the brain and that actual experience. So we can't really define what consciousness is. But um, in the, the way that the practice is classically described, the uh, consciousness element is a, a little bit different. Uh, what we're doing is we're realizing that, again, there's a flow, but it's a flow of perceptions and feelings and emotions and thoughts, and we're observing that flow uh, of uh, elements of consciousness. Maybe I shouldn't use the word elements again, because it's a bit confusing, but there, there are these components of uh, consciousness, uh, and we're observing them flowing. We're seeing them coming from nowhere, uh, appearing briefly and then passing away again, and so we're observing the the transience, uh, the flowing river-like nature of uh, those aspects of consciousness. The the practice traditionally doesn't include the same contemplation of you know inner and outer with with each of the other elements. What you're doing is you're becoming aware of the element outside yourself, the 
of the water element, for example, outside of yourself. You're becoming aware of the water element within you. You're becoming aware of how the water element uh, within you is derived from the water element outside and how it's passing uh, back into the water uh, element outside. And so you're becoming aware of this entire process of flow. And uh, there isn't that outside-inside perspective as it's described in, in the practice classically. But I found that actually it's, it's a useful perspective to bring into the practice. So we can become aware, for example, of uh, all the different aspects of ourselves that are uh, conditioned by other people and our relationships with other people. So it's very basic things like language. You know, if you weren't exposed to language as a, as a young child, you'd never actually be able to get to the stage of uh, communicating uh, linguistically. You'd never be able to learn any language whatsoever. The narrow win window of period in the first, uh, you know, I can't remember things about a year, uh, 15 months, something like that. If you don't hear language in that period, bye-bye uh -huh. language circuits in your brain, you just don't develop at all. So, you know, our ability to be able to uh, think linguistically, to be able to communicate uh, verbally, that's all dependent upon other people. You know, all the ideas, the culture, the music, the thoughts, the insights, the beliefs, the traditions, the religious practices, I mean, all of those things can come from outside of ourselves, all those things that we regard as being part of us and as important parts of our identity. They've actually come from outside. And that's, that's another way of thinking about the flow of the consciousness element and realizing that, again, we can't exist in isolation. We're not separate. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that traditionally the practice of the six elements did not consider this outside-inside? or it, it No. Yeah, traditionally it didn't consider that outside-inside thing. That's something I bring into, into my own practice and I'm writing about uh -huh. at the moment in, in the book. I, I have to say, I depart from tradition where I think it's useful to do that. I tend to be quite pragmatic uh, in my approach to the meditation. Sounds good to me. <laughs> but that, that's very interesting then about the consciousness component, as you're saying, considering it from the outside and the, the inside. Yeah. I, I, it does seem, this is kind of what I was trying to say before when I was talking about how people identify with, you know, what I was just loosely saying, their mind or their thoughts, that this identification with our consciousness, even though we don't yeah. really know what it is, yeah. we still sort of think we're something like that. Yeah, yeah, we do. And we have this idea that there's some level on which we tend to assume that there's something fixed uh, about us, something fixed and static and separate uh, about us. And it's a natural thought, uh, it's a natural attitude to have, but it's a very, very limiting uh, attitude to have as well. Uh, it's an attitude that ends up causing us uh, suffering and ends up preventing us from experiencing a greater degree of happiness than we have at the moment. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I love this idea of living as a river, and I'm wondering how that type of awareness and recognition comes into more of your daily challenges. I know you have a young child and no, two young children now, right? Two, yeah, we adopted two children from Ethiopia. Does this river concept help at all in the in parenting in the parenting world? It, it does actually help me. Um, my my daughter, who's almost three, is you know at the stage of the terrible twos, and she's not as bad as a lot of children, but she has these complete meltdowns from time to time. You know, lying on the floor, 
drumming her uh, her hands and feet against the, the floorboards and tears flowing down her face and screaming at the top of her voice and all this kind of stuff. Uh-huh. You know, when you want her to do something went that she didn't want to do. And uh, I find it really interesting to realize that this is just a flow, again, of events that's happening. It's very, very easy to to think of it in terms of, well, she's being bad. There's, there's, a, there's a she there, there's a her there, and she's doing this thing, and she, it's bad, and she's doing it to me, and I take it personally, and I get annoyed by it because I want her to do something, and she's not doing it, and it all gets kind of horribly messy. I find it much easier to have a kind of a, a looser sense of her as kind of an evolving being, almost like a, almost like a river. There are these uh, currents of her being that are coming into consciousness, uh, sometimes for the first time. You know, it, it's very, very interesting watching a child growing up because they start off very, very simple, uh, basically pretty damn happy, uh, almost like you would you know, think of an enlightened person. So certainly they're just being aware of the world like in a raw, non-conceptual way and being pretty happy unless, you know, they're hungry or they're in pain or something like that. And then, you know, the craving starts coming in, the clinging starts coming in. Uh, up to about a year, my children didn't complain if you took anything away from them. It was just, you know, okay, the toy was there, the toy's not there, okay, so just, you know, happily babble away. And then once craving starts kicking in, so does, you know, ill will and, um, and anger all this kind of stuff. I'm glad to say neither of my children have existed any kind of hatred yet, but there's still a, that's still to come. So these emotions are kind of, you know, coming into being. And what is that like for the first time to start experiencing frustration, for example? You've got to learn to handle that. I'm, I'm looking at my daughter more and more as being this evolving being who's dealing with the upwelling of stuff that has never been there before and it's not personal even for her. She doesn't understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's not something that she is doing. It's kind of almost happening to her. It's not something that she's doing to me because it's not really about me. It's about her and her, the evolution of her consciousness. And uh, I'm finding that it's it's easier and easier these days just to take her uh, temper tantrums and just surround them with a field of uh, compassion because I realize uh, the magnitude of what she's going through at the moment. And rather than setting myself in opposition to her, uh, just kind of you know, just embracing her and comforting her as she's going through this uh, transitional process. And, you know, I, the other day, she had one of these meltdowns. She hadn't napped all day. It was time to take her to bed. She was hyper, didn't want to go to bed. And I, I just very gently said, I kept saying, Maya, Maya, no, you really have got to go to bed. And I, I had to pick her up, which I don't like um, forcing her physically to do something. Mm-hmm. Unless I, it's absolutely necessary. But I had to pick her up to take her to bed. And she was kicking me, and she was, I shouldn't bite the sign that she was pinching, etc. And it was just like, none of this is personal. None of this is personal. And it was very easy just to have that perspective. You know, being pinched by a two-year-old, it hurts, it's unpleasant, but... You don't have to take it personally. So, so you're not taking it personally, meaning it's not about you, but you're also not thinking that she's meaning it in a in a in terms of her own personhood. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's not personal to her. It's not personal about me either. You know, it's interesting. I, I wonder if it's ever worth taking anything personally. I don't think it is. I don't think anything is personal. I think that's a, a slogan for life: is that nothing's personal. 
Uh, and it comes back to what I was talking about earlier, where uh, people all have the basic desire to be happy, but they have strategies which will often make them uh, unhappy, and in the process of making them unhappy, they'll often make other people unhappy as well. So it's the uh, it's the strategy that's at fault. It's not the underlying deeper uh, concern that that person has. So in a way, you know, nothing nothing is personal. This is stuff. Yeah, but let's take an everyday example. You know, I mean, somebody says something critical about you. Yeah. Online, or you know, worse, they you know, uh, you know, some kind of embarrassment or or something else that just seems terrible. Do you know what I mean? Okay. Well, yeah, I can give you an example. Uh, not too long ago, uh, this uh, woman, I think it was a woman anyway, because it was posted anonymously, uh, but I assume it was a woman. She was writing about some of the work that I do in prisons, and it so happened that. Uh, according to what she wrote, anyway, um, the person who murdered her 83-year-old grandfather uh, was in the prison that I uh, teach meditation and Buddhism in. And, you know, she made this enormous attack on me about, you know, criticizing everything about me. I wasn't really a Buddhist, and, you know, if I was really compassionate, I'd be working with the victims of crime, not with people that perpetrated them, and uh, people that were in prison weren't really human and, you know, that whole kind of thing. But when you see where that comes from, you know, if she, assuming this is genuine, if she lost her grandfather, well, my, you know, yeah, that is just a really painful thing, and she's dealing with that pain, uh, with the resources that she has available, which might not be particularly well-developed resources. So her best resource that, that she can find is, you know, anger and resentment and hatred. And it's a strategy for trying to deal with the pain uh, that she's got. So, you know, when I responded to her, I, I responded to her with that um, that perspective in mind, that you know, she was a suffering being who was expressing her suffering in a way that wasn't really going to help her or help others. I mean, I try not to kind of hammer that too much, but just to uh, point out some of the realities of, of what I'm doing. For example, you know, people that are in prison are going to be getting out. Do you want them to get out having become more aware and more compassionate? Or do you want them to come out uh, having become more embittered and more hostile? Because those are choices we make in our uh, punitive system. Mm -hmm. So do do you think it's a a reasonable recommendation that if someone finds themselves taking something personally, that that's a good moment to sort of pause and inquire? I think when you find that you're taking something personally, the first thing that I do is become aware of the pain that, that I'm experiencing. I become aware of the underlying need uh, that it is not being met. So, for example, I'm driving along. Somebody cuts me off to you know, drive way too close to me. Yeah. Uh, or sometimes you know, this kind of surge of anger comes up, and then I'll think, okay, what's below the anger? Wow, okay, fear. That person came way too close to me, and I had a sense of what's a safe distance, what's not a safe distance when that... Uh, kind of invisible boundary becomes transgressed. I experience uh, fear and suffering. My sense of security uh, has been lost. And if I acknowledge that sense of fear, uh, pain, insecurity, um, the anger vanishes. So I think when you start taking something personally, uh, start looking a little bit deeper at what's going on within yourself and empathize. It's not just noticing that that's going on, but you have to that, that, that pain, etc., is going on, but you have to become aware of it uh, empathetically. And then everything changes. You know, finally, Bodhi Paksa, 
Our, our program is called Insights at the Edge. And I'm wondering, this has been a, a deep inquiry for you, the, the whole writing of a book on the six-element practice. What is your own edge in all of this, in writing this book and in the work that you're doing now? Well, I think my edge... Well, the book is my edge, really. It's the inquiry into the nature of the self. Um, I don't know, are, are you asking what effect this has had on me? Or? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, uh, interestingly, it has had quite a, quite a strong effect on me. Um, a few weeks ago, I lost my sense of having a self, which was a most interesting development and quite unexpected. I was uh, putting my daughter to bed. I think that's kind of significant because I've been having this perspective for some time now of not regarding her not regarding her actions as being something that are personal to her or that I should take personally. And so I was just watching her, you know, beginning to drift off to sleep and suddenly I realized I didn't have a self. Um, my sense of myself uh, was that it was just a continuous process of, uh, of change, um, becoming aware of my mind and body. I was just aware of uh, a continuously evolving process of changing causes and conditions, different uh, thoughts, different feelings, different uh, sensations coming into being and passing away. I didn't have any sense of there being anything permanent there or any kind of substratum. And uh, that uh, that awareness has been with me ever since uh, to varying degrees. Uh, and sometimes it's like I mean, imagine, for example, if you won the lottery the first few days, you'd just be bouncing up and down every 15 minutes saying, wow, I won the lottery! And then after a while it becomes as, as part of your experience and it's like, you know, day 15, it's like, oh yeah, right, I won the lottery, didn't I? And then you don't think about it for a while. So it's been a bit like that. Um, it was something that I was, I was just watching with watching with uh, amazement for the first few days, first week or so. And then after that, it's, it's kind of faded into a kind of a background awareness. And whenever I uh, bring my attention to my experience, I realize it's continually changing and that there's nothing permanent there. It's almost like I have a new self every couple of seconds. You know? It's like watching a, uh, watching a kaleidoscope turning. There's always a picture there, but it's only there momentarily. Uh, it's instantly replaced by, by a new picture. And that, at the moment, is my experience of myself, of being a kaleidoscope. So previously, something in you was more solid and, and firm, and now it's more changing and fluid? Yeah, I think it's not so much that um, what's there has changed. It's my perception of what's there has changed. I think I've always been a kaleidoscope of changing sense impressions and thoughts and feelings, etc. Uh, but there's been an assumption that of permanence, an assumption that there's something there that's unchanging. So I think what's happened is not that what's there has changed, but my assumptions about it have changed. The way I look at it has changed. Wonderful. Thank you, Bodhi Paksa. You're very welcome. Living as a river. I like I it. I enjoyed the chat. Yeah. Well, maybe that's the title for the book. I don't know. I'll, I'll file that along with my 200 other possible titles. Wonderful. 
Okay. Okay. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to Insights at the Edge, and we've been speaking with Bodhi Paksa, who is the creator of two different audio programs with Sounds True, The Wisdom of the Breath and Still the Mind, programs in which he teaches guided meditations. Both of these programs are available for download at www.soundstrue.com. For Sounds True, my name is Tammy Simon. Thank you so much for joining us and listening. Sounds True. Many voices, one journey.